Welcome to the Indie Matters Podcast, where we talk about issues that matter most to Nevada. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent. We're a nonprofit news site. You can find us at the NevadaIndependent.com. And you can find this podcast all over the place Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes, and many other places. Go on there, rate us, subscribe, tell all your friends, wear sandwich boards for us, whatever it takes. On this podcast, we're going to be talking about the housing market and much more with Keith Lynham. He's a former president of the Greater Las Vegas Realtors, incoming president of the statewide organization, and someone who knows the industry inside and out, and someone I have known for way, way too many years. I'm joined for the questioning by Jackie Valley. She's the indie reporter who knows the most about these issues. Hi, Keith. Good afternoon. Hi, Jackie. Hello. So let's start off, uh, Keith, I'm going to let Jackie do the heavy lifting because she actually knows something about this subject. Uh, but let's just start. Jackie's done a lot of reporting on this, both in northern Nevada and southern Nevada. And she finds maybe the potential uh, of, of, of another bubble uh, happening. Uh, we know what happened uh, about 10 years ago, and, and it was a disaster for everybody now. I know like it's in the realtor's code that you have to be optimistic all the time, but should there be warning bells ringing right now? You know, we've got Sonny as our governor. You can't have Sonny as a real estate agent. Is that what I'm hearing? I guess you that's know, what I'm you, saying. You throw me a lob for, for Jackie knowing more than you do, and I, and I don't take a whiff at it, so... Is there a bubble? I mean, you know, define bubble. But uh, you know, is, is from the standpoint of do we always have to be rosy? No, I think there's storm clouds on on the horizon, and and you define what those are. We have uh, a little bit of a slowing of a rate, but I think that's actually good news. Uh, we've had unsustainable appreciation rates over the last, frankly, last decade, as we've had with our economy. It's just rolling and rolling and rolling. At some point. You have to pump the brakes, and and I think we're nearing that point. We've got buyers that just can't find anything, and they get fatigued, and they end up leasing a, an apartment for for a year, and so that takes buyers out of there. Um, but the good news is, I think we're nearing a sustainable appreciation rate, which should be around four to six percent. We're still eleven, twelve percent. Compare what's going on now, what you just described, to what was going on right before uh, the disaster of 2008, the collapse, the, 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 bubble, the bubble bursting. And, and were there lessons learned that, that, that you and others in the industry now are, are taking heed of? Well, that's two, two answers. Did I learn lessons? Yes. Did the industry learn lessons? I don't know, John. So uh, the, the thing that separates, and, and I was just talking about this the other day to somebody, the thing that separates us from 2008 it was the calamity of loans that were out there. It was, it was, we all hear the stories. I tell everybody, watch The Big Short. If you want to see the movie that explains it the best, Too Big to Fail, um, they were literally running out of people to give money to. And so we don't have those kinds of loans. You don't have the no-doc loans, no verification loans, the 114% loan to value. You don't see those loans out there. So that's going to help us when we start to, to, to come back a little bit. Um, we won't uh, be able to, I'll say this now, I don't think we'll crash like we did before. Um, we'll peel back a little bit, but that's natural. Jackie? I wanted to ask you about the, the affordability issue. Um, New York Times ran a piece uh, this weekend looking at it in Denver. Uh, I touched on it in my story last week. Um, you know, do you get the feel from your clients that a lot of them, just their wages haven't increased as much as housing prices have and they feel a little squeezed out? 
And, and that's just the simple fact of the matter. And so, especially in Southern Nevada, that's that's always been our bellwether and why we have to be concerned about more than just real estate is we have to be concerned about wage growth in this town and, and it hasn't been there. And so that is concerning you know, that, that you have people that are just not able to keep up with entry-level homes. And there used to be um, that vacuum, that, that gulf used to be filled by the new home builders and they just aren't doing that anymore. And, and maybe they can't, maybe it is pricing, the, the land is, is outpriced them, but there used to be the day when the person that bought their first home almost always, in this valley anyway, bought a brand new home. And then they graduated up to the step-up homes into the better neighborhoods, quote-unquote. That just doesn't exist anymore. And so what's there? $350,000 median homes. And that you just don't do that on anything less than a pretty decent job. And we're back to square one. Are there pretty decent jobs in this valley? What do you consider an entry-level home? Because if you look at the market or Zillow right now, you can see like – even two bedroom condos going for closer to three hundred, or a three bedroom house for three fifty. <laughs> what does that look like now? <laughs> yeah, it's just, you're asking somebody that uh, that should know, and, and you know it should be around one hundred seventy five to two two twenty five. That should be an entry level home for someone that is, you know, got a decent job. Um, it used to be in this town that you you could uh, you know work for a landscaping company and and um, and a casino, and you could afford an entry level home here. And and I don't think you can do that anymore. So it should be there. But that's also why condos and townhomes are starting to pick up steam. And, and if you look at the facts, the, the statistics that are released, those sales are up versus the resale and even new homes. Condos, townhomes, that's where people are going. They, they don't have a choice. Do you buy the notion that just these costs for the builders are going up in terms of wood and construction materials, land, and that that's why they're not building more affordable houses? Or is it just frankly, a better opportunity for them to make money off a $400,000 home. I'm smiling when you're asking this, and I know that they can't see it. I've got a voice for radio, not a face, right? Mm -hmm. But I'm not a fan of the new home builders uh, because I I think there's a lot of things they can do better in this town, and and there's a lot of things that they hide behind in this town that that they shouldn't, and and I think they treat the consumer. um, They can certainly treat this consumer better than they do. So do I buy it? Completely no. Um, there's a lot of infield projects that you can go into. There's a lot of vacant land. I'll take you a drive. Uh, we're here at UNLV. I can take you a drive 10 minutes in either direction and pick out uh, four or five lots that are five acres and more that are just sitting there vacant. Um, I live at uh, one of the high-rise projects. I can out look on my val- balcony and I can point out five or six infield projects that could be there that are in great neighborhoods that could be an entry-level home. So do I buy it completely? No. Um, but I, I, you know, where they're buying the land, yeah, I, I can get where they're doing. They got to stack them, three stories, and all those ridiculous configurations that they were doing. I sometimes hear people say, "Oh, well, they need to be a little bit more creative in building more affordable housing." What do you think that means? I mean, are there obvious ways to address this problem um, that could be a, a solution for both the home builder and the buyer? Yeah, I mean, I th- I think we need to ask the consumer what they want. Do they want a three-story building with the you know the garage on the b- f- bottom and the you know all those things? I don't know if they want that or not, or is that just forced on them and they didn't have any choices? Um, you know, I think there's a lot of different communal homes that 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 would work, in, especially in this valley. Um, you know, I think you, you know you don't build it and they come, but you got to find out what they're looking for. I I just know this that there is a an issue with affordable. Um, homes that uh, that are safe, 
uh, and and that provide a, a community um, in this valley. I, I know that. What's the solution? You know, I, I could come up with some mm-hmm. ideas, but um, again, that's that that's something I think we need to find out. What, what does a consumer want? I know what they don't want. What don't they want? Yeah, you know, they don't <laughs> want the stackable homes. They don't want the you know, sitting on top of each other, and, and they want they want some yards. When most people want to resale, and, and think about yourself, and when you want to go and buy a resale home, what do you want? You want a little little yard. It doesn't have to be a big yard. They don't want to be stacked up on each other. They hate the three-story thing. Um, all the people that I talked to that, that bought the, that product hated it when they got into it and couldn't get out of it fast enough. The problem is they couldn't sell it because nobody else wanted it either. They'd heard those stories. So... You know, I get it. It was something they tried new, but, you know, and it's not a criticism. Well, I guess it is a criticism, but, you know, it, it's, you know, what else did we do at the time? I think there were some things that we could have done. Maybe put garages somewhere else. Maybe they're not attached. I don't know. Well, I'm glad you brought up the point about lot sizes. Um, Commissioner Chris Giunculiani recently floated out a proposal that she'd like to see some sort of change um, in coding or zoning to allow for bigger lots um, as a standard minimum. Do you think that's feasible? Um, is that what people really want? And, you know, if we do go that direction, is that going to put a further crunch on the market? You know, anytime you have government, and, and, and I've known Chris G for a long time, and I'm sure she's listening to this podcast, right? She's probably one of your first listeners. The, the one criticism I would have is that she didn't reach out to, to us that, that do this. Maybe she reached out to the home builders. I don't know. Um, but that's usually, that should be the first conversation we have is to find out um, how those things would work. Um, I'm not nece- necessarily opposed to what she's saying. I get what she's saying. And, and from the feel-good attitudes of what do the consumer want, they, yeah, they, they do want a yard. You know, I don't know how you put that into code, that you've got to have a certain percentage of yard, you got to have a square footage. of. I don't know how you do that. Because at the end of the day, costs come into it. So, um, but I will tell you this: I can pick out a number of lots, number of vacant areas in her district that we could do something like that if she's willing to go to bat for us. Let me ask you a little bit about um, a more global look at, at, at all of this. You mentioned the Big Short, which is which is a great book by Michael Lewis, and was actually um, made into a, a really good movie too. I was surprised what a good job they did. But basically, what was going on back then when all of this happened was you had people who wanted the American dream of home ownership, but weren't really ready to do that. And yet they were given loans because there wasn't enough documentation. There wasn't the usual due diligence that was done. Now that we're, again, prices are up again, and, and, and we talked about the 350000 uh, a number that, that, that you and Jackie talked about, is the mix of people who are looking to buy now different than it was 10 years ago? In other words, uh, obviously, obviously banks and, and mortgage lenders have, have learned from that. They don't want to get in that situation again, but they still want, to, they still want those mortgages uh, Keith, and so uh, is the mix of people really that different that are looking for to buy homes now? You know, it's interesting that millennials, when you talk to whatever a millennial is, when you when you hear them as a group, um, in a, as a focus group, they they have lived through that. Mm-hmm. They saw their parents lose their homes, they saw their their friends' parents lose their homes, and so when you hear that they they're transient and they you know uber and, and they're they're you know, all of these things that fit a millennial quote unquote um, are true but at the same time it's the i think it was the trauma of seeing what what happened 
but as the person that's out there looking for a home, have they changed? John, if, when you sit at a table and you see someone that is the least sophisticated, and I include myself in that, and you've got the, the mortgage broker and the banker saying you can afford this, I don't think that's changed. When you slide those papers across the table and say, you know, we've looked at this, we're smart. We know what we're doing when we look at all of your figures and all the things you've given us, and we're telling you you can afford this loan, and you slide those across. I don't think that that person has changed. They're still going to sign that, whether they know in deep down in their heart that they have. And that and the crux of what happened in, in the, the run-up and all of those things is you had the smartest people in the room telling the least sophisticated people in the room, you can afford this, you can do this, and don't worry about it, you'll just refinance in a couple of years. Has that changed? I I hope it has, but you know, history has a way of repeating itself for a reason. It does, and, and, and people have very short attention spans, as you know, and uh, despite appearances to the contrary, realtors are people too, uh, <laughs> mortgage lenders are, are, are people too, and now it's, you get back into that potentially uh, the, the the same environment, which is which is the worry, and 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 that th- there is a myopic look as 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 opposed to a telescopic look at the past and to the future. Uh, 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 again, I, I know you're not a completely rosy scenario kind of guy. Are, are you saying there's no reason to worry about that? No, I'm not. I think there's a couple of safeguards that we have, and and I'm going to say something that most everybody disagrees with me when it, when it comes to realtors and and mortgage brokers, and that's the Glass Eagle. You know that that I think has put some constraints that are that are needed. Um, you know, Fannie and Freddie, the guidelines that they are under, I think those things are needed. When so, you talk about Glass-Steagall, so in case people don't know what you're talking about, you're talking about the, the separation of commercial and, and residential banking operations. And, and yeah, exactly. And then some of the guidelines that you have to have. And then the Freddie and Fannie part of that is here's how you resell your loans, which was eliminated last time. They bundled them and, and that's that's what caused the, the, the spiking of the... Uh, of the of the issue and confounding of the issue. And so those things are still in place. And so it kind of prevents us from doing it. And so when I hear, well, we need government out of it, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm not on board with that. We need, we need government to check ourselves sometimes and to help us. And so that's what's different this time, that we can't do the runaway stuff because we have taken the, we've taken the alcohol out of the bar. And so um, we've protected ourselves from that. But minus that, you know, it, it could be more, an issue. More government regulation. And didn't you used to be a Republican in another life, this, Mr. Lyon? I knew this was going to come up. Still am. <laughs> you still, yeah, you're still I, I didn't leave the Republican Party. The Republican Party <laughs> left me, huh? Yeah. Where how, have we heard that? How many central committee meetings do you go to now? <laughs> Not too many, I would guess. Go ahead, Jackie. <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you, it seems like literally everywhere I drive, there's a new apartment complex rising. And, and you mentioned that earlier, that their people can't afford it, they decide to rent for a year. But do you think we're going to get to a point where maybe we're just overbuilding apartments and as soon as that levels off, we're going to have all these empty blocks of three-story apartment buildings? We had had one of our industrial hedge fund clients tell us it didn't, didn't matter how much, go out and buy apartments. And we literally couldn't find any at that time. And so... Uh, to answer the question, yeah, there'll be a tipping point like there is everywhere else. And then we'll just flip them back and condoize them like we did last time. And so they'll just turn apartments into condos and it'll be a balancing act. There always will be a need for that kind of product. Not everybody wants to, 
to own a home and not everybody wants to own a resale, uh, just a standalone single family. They'll always want either the condo or live in an apartment. So we'll need that. And, um, you know, they'll figure it out from there. One of the things I I've thought was interesting that I was having a conversation the other day, you got all these big box malls and stores and, and why not try to figure out how to turn that into uh, an affordable housing issue? It, 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 you can't be a dormitory situation, but there may be something that we could figure out to do that. And, and you look at some of these things, you know, there's some pretty big malls out there that are just sitting there across the country, frankly, that are just sitting there. And so those are the kinds of things you're going to have to come up with. The other thing we hear a lot is that, you know, it's a bunch of people from California moving here and buying homes. Is that fact or more of a myth that just gets perpetuated time and time again? I never think it's a bad idea to blame anything on California, is it? I mean, it's, 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 it's a standard a, thing, he right? He's still a Republican, right? <laughs> I've been to the parties. I've been to the ranch, right? You know, we can always blame that. There, there is a California exodus, though, and, and, and there is that, that type of person that's coming over here that is just done. I flew over here uh, a couple weeks ago, uh, uh, actually from the Northwest, somebody from California, and they were exact, doing the exact same thing. They were done with California. They were saying, we need to, we need to figure out a different, different approach. Are they retiring here? Are they getting jobs here? Because, you know, if they move from California and get a job here, they're going to, I would presume, make less money than they were in California. And then are they really better off buying here than? We've had three or four people that have sold um, houses that they've had in California for a number of years, had them paid off, came over here. In one instance, one gentleman bought the home he was living in for cash and then bought two others for rentals. And so he was cash flowing, so he didn't need to work. Um, and he was, you know, mid fifties, late sixties. So, or early sixties. So I think there's a mixture of both. Yeah, they're coming over here, but they're just, they're, there really is the California exodus. And that's, you know, I, I love California, but there isn't the California exodus. What about house flipping? As prices go up, are we seeing less and less of that? It's interesting. We, we, uh, we being our, our brokerage, um, has probably, have probably done as many, if not more than uh, anybody in town on flips. And, and uh, the partner and I have, for the last year, we just can't find him. Actually, actually, a year and a half. He's smart. He's actually gone on to Texas, and he'll probably be in the Carolinas next. But there just hasn't been that product to, to flip. You know, here and there, there's been a couple of them, but they're starting to come back. And so when we start talking about, you know, are we are we approaching the bubble? Are we are the the trustee sales or? They're certainly not marketably more because they're not, but they're starting to come back a little bit. To, you see the trustee sales going on. You start to see some of the sellers saying, we just need to get rid of these. So you're starting to see them a little bit. I'm sorry to interrupt, but explain what that means because some people might not be familiar with that terminology. The, the trustee sale part yeah, of it? Yeah, right. that's the, the, the final step of the, of the foreclosure process. Um, and I haven't tracked it for a while, so I want to go back and look. But just the other day, I had reason to do that. And looked at the sheet, and it was a it was a pretty decent sheet, and has heard uh, from from a couple of our guys that go down to that auction down at the legal. If you've never been to a circus, that's a good <laughs> one to go to. Um, but they're buying up properties now, and they used to just go right straight back to the bank. So, what does that tell me? Nothing yet, but I, I just one of those things that we want to start looking at. There was a lot of that going on 10 years ago. So that's and a great question from Jackie about the flipping of houses and uh, and speculators suddenly starting to look at the market again. I, I mean, that would seem to me to be an early warning sign that something might be going on, right? 
And long-term holds because of the the rental market. So not so much the flipping activity, but the you know so m- most of these hedge funds have come in and they're now starting to hang on to it because of the um, rising rental rates that are getting there. So they're they're not flipping; they're actually holding them. Um, and then there are some that have bought at the right times back in the 2010, 2011. That you know what I'm I I can sit on some cash for a while, and if there is a correction, great, I've got cash to sit on. Um, and, and so I sent out a newsletter and, and just the other day sent out one that uh, I, mis- I misread the article. I thought uh, it said $1 billion, that Warren Buffett was sitting on $1 billion in cash. It turned out to be $100 billion in cash. But the point was he's waiting for a good deal to show up, and cash is not a bad thing. I think he spent $99.5 billion on TV trying to preserve his monopoly, his energy monopoly. Maybe that's why he was sitting on it, yeah. So I knew we could get into the politics thing here. That's right. What about that pre-recession peak of 315000 median price for single-family homes? Um, we haven't gotten there yet, uh, I, we, although we haven't seen the September numbers yet. But you indicated that it was probably not – drastically changed. Yeah. A, do you think we'll get back up to that point? And then B, is there a number that would scare you if we ever got to that point? Yeah, we're, we're getting there. I, a number of years ago, I said, well, when I was president in 2015, I, I said, we, I don't think we'll get back there. And, and certainly in the foreseeable future, we're a lot closer than I actually thought we would be. We're to what, almost 290, 295, somewhere mm-hmm. near and, and close to 300. That 300 is the mark where I think we need to start getting a little bit concerned I don't know that we'll get to 315, 320 um, without the loans. Because uh, I think if you went back, and I haven't, but I think if you go back and look at those marks in 2006 and seven, it's when those crazy loans that really started to implode um, because it, it was free money for everybody. So the answer is, you know, well, never say never. I learned that. But you know, I, I think if you get close to it, I think we've got something to be worried about. What, what about the growth patterns uh, in, in uh, Las Vegas? Let's talk about Las Vegas for a second. Uh, when, when all that growth was going on 10 years ago and all the buying was going on, are, are, are different areas of town experiencing that now than they were back then, people buying? Is it spreading more to the southeast or, or this time? Or, or, or are there any patterns like that you can identify? Yeah, I was just talking to a longtime uh, broker, and and he said he felt this seller's market was even crazier than the seller's market back in those in those crazy times. And so, uh, before it was all over the place, there was no right. boundaries. I mean, yeah, everybody was you know, Summerlin and Green Valley, but it was all over the place. I saw a place out in eastern uh, east side of uh, Las Vegas where there was literally five and six. Writing uh, uh, realtors writing offers out on the car hood after, uh, and going right back in and giving it to them. And so this time it, it's it hasn't been that widespread. It's been more of the, just the pockets. Um, uh, so I don't think it's as crazy this time. But you know, a lot of guys say that this was a more strenuous, more the sellers were certainly more arrogant this time than they were last time. That's for sure. I did sense that, and they're starting to come back. The, the, those sellers now are not as, even within the last couple of weeks, there's, you start to see some of the sellers that are starting to think, you know, I, I need to sell this thing. And maybe it's not worth what I thought it was. Um, let me ask you, since you're uh, being forced to be a statewide guy now uh, <laughs> as the head of the Nevada organization, let's talk a little bit about Reno. We have a few minutes left and, and, and the market up there. Jackie went up there and did some reporting on that. Um, the so-called Tesla effect. 
Uh, we know that there's been an effect lately on Tesla with uh, Elon Musk. Uh, and by the way, unlike the po other podcasts, we will not offer you uh, uh, any weed as, as, as Elon Musk smoked weed on the podcast. But he just paid a huge fine, uh, agreed to step down as chairman. What effect that has on the company uh, is unclear. But it seems to me from people I talk to and from Jackie's reporting, which is now a couple of months or so old, that, that there still is that effect going on up there and things are zooming uh, up there. What, what are people you know who, who understand that market? Tell you know, you? A, a good friend of ours, George Peak. I think you know George from from uh, from Reno. Uh, you know he he is real. I mean, and he always is. He's he's big on the the, the Nevada growth, and it and it goes beyond Tesla. It's the 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 tech root uh, the center that they've got out there with Switch and all that. It's the Amazon uh, effect. The I blockchain mean, was, guys that are in there now. It, black. It was all of that it was. It was a conglomeration of all of that stuff going on. And and then the fact that Reno never really has had the big swings because they've been more established and more, um, dare I say, conservative. But they've always been a, a more even keel than Southern Nevada on everything up there. And so you never saw the craziness that, that they did. They, they certainly experienced the dips. They've certainly experienced the lack of, of inventory that we have here, um, but not, not the craziness up there. Uh, well, you mentioned George Peak, and, and I've known George Peak for a long time. George Peak has been a realtor up there for a long, yep. long time. What is his outlook? What did he tell you? Yeah, I think he's bullish. You know, he's he's you know I haven't talked with him over the, the since the weed incident, but uh, <laughs> I doubt that George has even heard of the weed incident. <laughs> Probably but, not. Uh, um, I haven't talked to him, but he's always been. And you, you talk to any of the realtors up there, and they're all you know we're very busy. Um, we're, we're doing deals and, and we're getting things done. And so it's always been rosy um, up there. And, and uh, they've just never really had the concerns and then the wild rides that we've had. It seems like there's some friction up there, though, in terms of the, the growth in the outlying areas in terms of do we want our small town culture to change? Um, Daniel Rothberg just did a story for us and it was loosely tied to water and, and land. But even when I was in Fernley, there was that a little bit of a discord there. Like, yes, it's nice that these houses are going up, but we're going to lose our sense of small town. Small town America. I mean, that's the battle. That's the internal, you know, ticker that they go, go to Boulder City. I mean, it's the same thing there. And, um, you know, it's it, that'll that'll be, you know, forever, forever. You know, small town America, you know, when do you lose that small town part of it and and still feed our families to do that? And so, yeah, I, I, I think that's true. It, Certainly when you're talking about Fernley and the rest of that, Fernley, I think more than anywhere is, is kind of more cognizant of that because of where they're at. And they were really small. So, you know, that's a struggle that they're all going to have. I mean, it's just natural. You still have to have the economic growth and you still have to have, you know, the sense of community. And I think that's where we can fit in. If I can throw this in there, that the real estate community and the realtors in particular, that's where we need to fit in. That That needs to be our role is to fill that sense of community that we have so that it doesn't get crazy, that it doesn't um, get out of control like it did before. And, and if anything else that we've learned, I hope we've learned that, especially on today of all days, that we have some reflection to do um, and, and to sit back and think, you know, this is our role that we need to play in this. We need to be more than real estate. We need mm -hmm. to be more than that. 
So we have about a couple minutes left. Uh, let's talk about, since you mentioned realtors uh, as a community, um, <clears throat> it, it, it's going to come up sooner than anyone wants it to, but the legislature is going to be meeting again in February. Uh, the realtors have always had a very strong presence uh, up up in Carson City. Uh, uh, are you playing defense? Are, are you playing offense? What worries you? What do you want to get done? You know, we, we have played defense for a long time uh, just because of it's it's the nature of it. And, and we've tried to step out, um, you know, the, the old wars of, uh, you know, the foreclosure crisis. Um, we were very active in the homeowner bill of rights that Senator uh, Justin Jones put forward. Um, we were very active in those. And, and so we always try to take you know, the, the, the approach that we're there to protect the consumer, we're there to, yes, uh, make sure that we can uh, sell and buy homes in, in this state. Um, but more than anything, we need to protect the, 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 the consumer. So we did play defense. Um, then I said we kind of went to no fence um, you know, where we went in. We tried to fend off the property tax issues and, and have an open discussion, and we're still kind of there. But this next time you're going to see us on the offense. Um, and we're, we're going to take a, a shift in gears and that we're going to uh, go to the legislature and say we want to be better. We want to be better as a profession. We want to be better as a realtor family. Um, we want higher standards to, to get a license. Um, it, it's harder to get uh, a cosmetology license in this state than it is to get a real estate license. Um, you know, I don't know about what your hair looks like. When I get out, you know, I, I want to be able to go – uh, to a realtor and have them better educated than, than someone that cuts my hair. Um, we want to increase what it takes to keep your license for hours and, and CE credits. And then the backside of that is we want to make sure that uh, those that act up um, get fined in, in, in a little more serious fashion than they are now. So we're going to get them coming, we're going to get them entering, and we're going to get them going. And, and then we're going to do some other things that will up the professionalism with our – and I don't know too many industries that do that, that go to the legislature and say, we want to be better, we want to be held uh, more accountable, um, and we're going to do that next time. Well, well, it'll be interesting to look forward to that uh, and to see if you're uh, a man of your word uh, on that, Keith Lyman, as I've always known you. But I want to say an unusual disclaimer at the end of this interview, Jackie, that the views of Keith Lynham on cosmetologists do not necessarily <laughs> reflect the views of the Nevada Independent. So send him uh, your angry emails and, and phone calls. Uh, Keith Lynham, been a pleasure having you on uh, Indie Matters. Thanks for coming on. And, uh, Thanks, Joe. Thank Thanks, you, Jackie, Jackie for, for, for uh, asking the questions. And when we come back, Managing Editor Elizabeth Thompson and I will talk about some issues of the day. Stick around. Welcome back to Indie Matters, the podcast of the Nevada Independent. I'm John Ralston, the editor of the Nevada Independent, joined, as I often am at the end of Indie Matters, by Elizabeth Thompson, whose official title is managing editor, but whose unofficial title is the glue that holds the indie <laughs> together. Hi, everyone. And super glue most of the time. Uh, so, Elizabeth, let's uh, 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 talk a little bit about the day uh, that we're recording this podcast uh, on is probably uh, coming out to you a couple days after this that you're listening to this. But we're recording this on October 1st, uh, which is the, the the very somber anniversary of probably the worst day uh, in, in Nevada history uh, uh, with the shooting uh, at the Route 91 Festival. Uh, what have you been thinking about today? Um, 
um, you know, a combination of, of things. I, I've, of course, I've been thinking back to where I was when I heard about it, which was um, having after dinner drinks with a friend. I was actually in Los Angeles and I thought our workday uh, was over. Um, but as I am wont to do, I was checking Twitter. <laughs> um, and so even before the news broke by any of the news organizations, I started to see these tweets about a shooting um, on the Strip. Uh, the tweets I saw mentioned Mandalay Bay. They also mentioned Tropicana. There was a lot of confusion right off the bat. As the tweets continued to roll in, you know, it was a combination of accurate and inaccurate information, as we uh, now know, because there was just the one uh, location. Uh, I was interested to read in some of our own vignettes that we published today that law enforcement had the same exact thing going on. They were trying to figure out whether this was a multiple location crime or not. And I just remember feeling, at first I was sure it was a hoax. And then as I start to, started to see more and more tweets, I started to think, okay, well, there must be something to this, but I wonder what's really going on. And then about seven or eight minutes later, someone posted a video that they had taken with their phone of the shootings you know, at the shootings as it was going on with you could hear the pop, 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 pop of gunfire and the screams and the total chaos. And I just I was stunned and I was shocked. And then I burst into tears and it was just so hard to comprehend. It still was even, you know, when we went to bed that night and you remember we, we talked uh, through uh, our internal system with the staff. We didn't the initial reports, even though there were those scenes being put out on Twitter and, and Facebook, it was unclear how many people had been shot. It didn't seem like it was a mass casualty event that only a couple people had been had been killed uh, at, at first. Um, and and uh, it, it took a while for this to whole thing uh, to settle in. It's it's, uh, it's kind of weird, but both of us, you know, the, the the people who run this news organization, we were both out of town. I was in Reno. I started seeing uh, the reports on on cable news, and uh, and that's how we got together as a staff to discuss what we were going to do or not do, since we're a small uh, news organization. But 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 let me let me just pivot real quickly to what to what. Really, the vignettes that, that, that we got, that we published today, and what I've thought about a lot since then, uh, which goes contrary to what I've thought for so many years, I lived here for three and a half decades almost, about Las Vegas, which was the most disturbing thing to me about Las Vegas, was it seemed like often a soulless place, a place without a real sense of community, uh, that it was totally balkanized, that, you know, there were the people who lived in Summerlin who only socialized with people in Summerlin, maybe not even that, and people in Green Valley and then people uh, in, in other places. I don't necessarily think that this disproved that by what's happened that day and in the ensuing year, but I, I, I don't think it caused that not to be the case. I think it proved that I was wrong that there is a real sense of community in this valley that people really cared. I mean, I know, I know it sounds cliche or corny, cared about each other and about the Las Vegas community because everybody, literally everybody who lives here knows somebody who was at the concert, who was injured in the concert, or a fa had a family member killed. Literally everybody. And there was this thread that seemed to tie everybody together. And you really sense that with a couple of the vignettes that, that, that we published today. 
And and uh, I've really I've thought about that a lot. That you know, you you and I have visited or lived in other cities where you knew there was a sense of community, but because of Vegas gambling, whatever else, the Strip, it never felt that way to me. But I think that I think I'm wrong about that. Well, I, I don't know if you are are wrong. I mean, what is it the case that you know this underlying sense of community and cohesiveness was, you know, sort of loosely and vaguely there all along. And this event just really brought it out uh, in everyone. As you say, because we're still a relatively small city, we're not even 3 million people here in the Valley yet. That's small as metro standards go. And so as you say, everyone had some kind of a of a stake in this in some way, shape or form, even if it's only that they've been to Mandalay Bay or they've driven by that location you know, do- dozens and dozens of times. But the outpouring that that day and in the weeks that followed, people giving blood and people showing up at these vigils and the the volunteers just pouring into the community centers and the churches and the healthcare centers and so forth. Yes, it became obvious that you know something had been awoken, perhaps um, in, in a community of disparate groups uh, and individuals in which we all, all of a sudden, felt uh, as if we were a Las Vegas family. One thing I thought about today is, hmm, I wonder, has that lasted? Yeah, and I wonder the same thing. Uh, and and I guess we're we're, we're going to find out. Uh, I, I do want to um, say. Uh, and this may surprise people, may even surprise Elizabeth, but I commend to everybody uh, t- the, the October 1st edition of the Las Vegas Review Journal uh, in which they did, did, did a be- there's a beautiful picture. That, that's that, that's going to be one of the most remembered front pages in a long time and a 91 points of light. And they obviously put a lot of uh, work in into both not just their coverage of it a year ago, but into how they were going to cover the anniversary, and and they should be br- very proud of their work. And I hope people do uh, look at. It. I'm very proud of what we produced with our uh, small staff, uh, but I, I really do commend the the RJ's coverage. Absolutely, it was great. And uh, among in and among the many great things they did on October one, which I really appreciated because we didn't have the resources, they they obtained a photograph and wrote a biography of every single person who was killed. That that is that may not seem like a lot. That is time-consuming and difficult work. The amount of resources that were poured into just doing that, and I, I, I was very touched by that. I, I was very impressed uh, by that, and I was glad to, to see it. So I, I feel the same way. And kudos to everyone at the RJ who, who worked on that. Yeah, and so it's so easy uh, to, to step back from this as journalists and to uh, uh, human beings. It's statistics, names, but it not only puts a human face on the tragedy, the classic cliche, but for the families uh, of those folks, it, it, it's something that they can touch. Uh, so anyhow, um, let, let, let's switch gears in, into something much more prosaic, uh, and, and that is the, uh, the, the, the the ongoing saga as we sit here on, on, on October 1st of uh, Judge Kavanaugh and his uh, uh, potential confirmation, likely confirmation, murky confirmation uh, as a Supreme Court justice and the spectacle that is played out. Uh, uh, who knows what might have changed by the time people actually hear this podcast. Yeah, I'm sure, uh, so. well, I'm uh, sure uh, we'll uh, have had some FBI leaks <laughs> yeah, of this uh, investigation yeah, by then. So uh, your thoughts generally? Um, it is, it's just been, in my mind, sort of a travesty from one end to the next in the way it has been handled through the steps of the process I think by by both sides, and I can't 
you know, there's a lot of finger pointing right now and um, Lindsey Graham's impassioned, you know, speech where I thought his head was going to explode during that hearing when he was point, literally pointing fingers uh, at, at the Democrats. And, uh, and I sympathized with him as he was speaking, right? Because you, you can't deny after hearing Ford's testimony, and I, and I was stunned by this, even though I still sort of knew it was a fact. It was another thing to hear her say out loud that she contacted Diane Feinstein five months ago with all of the information that she just shared last week because she was very concerned when she saw Kavanaugh's name on a short list and thought it would be a good idea if someone knew the facts ahead of time so that those facts could be shared presumably with that Senate panel uh, who was who were looking at these different different candidates um, I think her intention was probably, hey, if we can get this guy off the short list uh, now because he's done these things and if this can be proven out and it sounded like she was well aware of the fact that things would need to be proven. It wasn't just going to – something wasn't going to happen just based on her word. So so Feinstein and other Democrats who knew about this, they sat on this uh, as they've been accused of um, for many, many months before they decided to start pressing her to come forward uh, and to speak out. And beyond that, it was also made clear in her testimony last week that she didn't really want to come to Washington, D.C. She didn't want a big spe- spectacle. She didn't want to be the center of attention. She would have much preferred if a co- if the Senate uh, ha- panel had sent a couple of members or some staffers out to California to sit down and depose her and talk to her. And it, she said, it was never made clear to me that that was an option and that's why I'm here today. And it became clear to me in that moment that the Democrats had completely manipulated this woman by putting this whole thing on hold for four or five months and then putting her in a position where we, you know, we need you to come to Washington, D.C. I think that was absolutely calculated. And I was I was I wasn't quite as angry as Lindsey Graham, <laughs> um, but it bothered me a lot that it was handled this way because this whole thing could have been headed off. Um, at the pass, I think, in many ways, or at least an attempt could have been made to get some of these questions answered uh, a lot sooner. That doesn't mean um, that I think the Democrats are entirely to blame in this situation, because I don't, because I think the Republicans have handled themselves terribly. It really bothers me that we're just now getting around to having the FBI investigate. Um, and even now, it's being limited uh, in the scope and who they can talk to, although Trump did indicate this morning that he's on board with a broader scope. I, I was actually encouraged. I was surprised by that. I was encouraged by that. I was thinking about Jeff Flake and thinking, OK, great. Now is a chance for everyone to speak up and say, yeah, let's broaden it. Uh, let's make the scope as wide as it needs to be to get to the bottom of this, to figure out whether we still really want this guy to be the nominee. And I'm sorry, I know that was long-winded, but there's, no, a, there's a lot of pieces. It wasn't long-winded, and I'm, I'm glad you said everything or most of what was on your mind uh, and and the latest reporting. And again, we are recording this podcast on Monday afternoon the 1st is that uh, uh, after Trump said that, that they're, they're, the reporters have gone back and now confirmed that, that they are going to – they have the freedom to talk to as many people as they want. It still seems likely to me though, Elizabeth, that they will never get any you know truth or not truth conclusion from, from interviewing Mark. Mark Judge says he doesn't remember it and once you get that out of there, are they going to find that, that, that Brett Kavanaugh probably told some untruths during his testimony? Yes, but I don't think they're going to find that they those untruths relate to this incident, whether uh, whether it occurred with him or but not. But I think doesn't that disqualify him right there if well, he yeah, lied to the Senate panel on any point of fact. Doesn't that disqualify him? Uh, 
I, I think actually there's a lot of people who think it should. I think it should. But again, you could, you know, Bill Clinton lied about sex. Should, should that should that have disqualified? Well, I'm not he saying, was already I, president. I, I'm not. I'm not saying. I'm, I understand. I'm not saying that that's a, a good analogy. But I will say this: the most disturbing thing to me about this is again, what's happening in this country is. So many people react to this, not by looking at, at, at this analytically at all or even viscerally, but through it's refracted through their partisan prism. And so they will not even consider uh, certain things. If you don't believe uh, a Ford's testimony, then you are denying all victims of sexual assault a voice. If you don't say that Brett Kavanaugh does not have the judicial temperament uh, after his performance, then obviously you 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 are you are not seeing this clearly. So you're I, you're parroting. I want to make clear to the people listening that you're parroting parroting the viewpoints that are out there right now, right? Well, I, I, are yes. you saying you agree with no, these? No, I'm, I'm listen. I happen to think that it is ludicrous to say that Brett Kavanaugh doesn't have the judicial temperament to be on the bench because he exploded at a bunch of blow Oviating senators, uh, it, that is how a man who was unjustly accused would react, and he's allowed to be angry about that. Is it also how somebody would react if they're trying to save their their, their confirmation? Of course it is, but people aren't judging it through those possibilities. They're just judging it by the way that they want they want to see it. Now it's clear that that, that Kavanaugh either lied or elided obvious truths in how he was reacting to questions, not about that incident, but to the kind of person that he was in high school and college. And, and, and people can go through and look all this stuff up about the devil's triangle and about other kinds of things that he said were just obviously not true. And I think, Elizabeth, a lot of people are going to think what you said. Number one, that should be disqualifying if you're going to lie under oath there. Uh, and, and number two, uh, that, that it doesn't matter really if the senators on either side misbehaved. And they, and they, and they did misbehave on both sides. And it's sickening uh, to watch them perform. But uh, there's other people who say, you know what? I don't blame the guy for lying about that. And I'll use this analogy again and I'll let you back in. That like Clinton did because it was about sex. And of course somebody's, once you're putting him in, in that position, is going to lie uh, about that. Yes, I, you know, I can, yes, I understand the argument. Um, I just don't accept it because I am still one of those foolish people who believes that when you are up for a Supreme Court seat, a lifetime appointment to the highest court in this nation, um, that presumably at his age, he could be in there for 20, 30 years or more, um, that you are answerable to a higher standard of integrity and of your demeanor. I'm not saying I don't think it was legitimate for him to come in there a little hot under the collar, but I think he crossed a line a few times with how belligerent he was. Of course he did. I, and I, refusing to that. answer certain questions. And if you're going to refuse to answer certain questions, why not just say, I respectfully decline to answer that question because I do not recognize the legitimacy of this line of questioning. If he would have said something like that, he would have scored a lot more points with me um, than what he did, which is get down in the mud and start slinging and waving his arms around and blustering. And there's, you know, he's practically, there was spittle on his desk because I, he couldn't control himself. That, to me, that's a temperament and a demeanor 
problem. I don't care who you are. That's not a partisan statement on my point. I, I, I dislike I that kind of thing in public discourse, period. And trust me, I know I know my friend uh, uh, Elizabeth very, very well, and this is perfectly consistent with how she judges human beings uh, <laughs> in, in general. But I, but I will say this, and I, I hold no brief uh, for, for Brett Kavanaugh whatsoever, but I think being in that crucible, and let's assume, and I'm not saying I believe this, but let's assume that he is completely innocent of everything he's been accused of by three different women at least, and he's had his family dragged through this, his his young daughters are, 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 have been dragged through this, and he comes in and, and, he, and he is subjected to the kind of inanities that some of those senators were spewing after all this had happened. And this, again, I'm, I'm saying here, consider the possibility this was not a staged performance that he didn't realize after Ford's testimony that he had to do this, which I think is a legitimate way to look at this, uh, I, I, that's, not a, that's not a reflection of how he's sober a jurist he's going to be. This is a man under tremendous pressure that none of us can really understand. I get where you're coming from, but the fact that he lost it in a very short period of time under that kind of pressure, to me, has no bearing at all on what kind of justice okay, he might be. So here's the other thing that bothered me is he had an opportunity during that hearing when Durbin put him on the spot about, okay, you maintain your innocence. We'd really like to know, everyone on this panel, everyone in the country would really like to know, why not just say you have the ability and the power right now as a candidate to say, fine, let's have a full FBI investigation into this matter uh, you know, under some reasonable timeline to allow these people and other people who knew him at the time to be questioned, to put some context on this um, and to double check and make sure that those sworn statements are actually correct because it does happen sometimes that people swear to things when they're in a small group or they're on the phone or it's over email and they're, oh, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll sign that, I'll sign that. It's a whole other thing when you're sitting in a room with a couple of FBI investigators asking you some very difficult questions. I think it's possible that maybe one or more of those sworn statements isn't true. I would like to know. And Kavanaugh did have the ability to just say, fine, let's do it. Let's put this whole thing on hold for a couple of weeks. Let the FBI talk to everyone they need to talk to. If he was really confident of his innocence, why not do that? If lying to the FBI, of course, you're right, is much different. It's a crime than, than doing some of the kinds of things. It was incredibly, you're incredibly disingenuous what Kavanaugh did under the questioning by Durbin and others. I will just, I'll do whatever the committee wants. That wasn't the question. Right. Okay, I am going to ask the president right here and now. Yes. To, uh, he could have he done that. He certainly could have, but, and he should have. But let me play devil's advocate on that. And we, we need to wrap this up a little bit because you and I could talk about this uh, forever and, and, and play devil's advocate by using what you said initially. This is the Democrats' fault to some extent because if Feinstein had pushed Dr. Ford earlier to, to have this fully vetted, that was back in July. There would have been a lot longer period. Uh, and now limiting this to a week and 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 and, and with all the, the, the nonsense that's out there now, uh, it's just very difficult for, for, for this to be done in this time frame. So, uh, but you're right. And, and that, 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 
to, to a lot of people, and I understand why that was a red flag. Why Why is Kavanaugh behaving that way? Why won't he just say, you know what, this is important enough. I understand why people are upset about this. And, and you know what, I, I have no doubt my name is going to be cleared. They can talk to whoever they want. Uh, and, and the FBI can take take its time. Uh, this is worth the wait. Uh, and uh, But that's not what he did. And it was, as I said before, totally disingenuous the way he answered those questions. I'll let you have the last word on that. Good, because I wanted to say one last thing, and it's okay. this. To all the people out there, and this is an argument I have seen you know, on social media and that I've even heard made among my uh, Republican friends, that, look, because he's been a judge for so long and he's been vetted for so many different offices, there actually have been FBI vettings of him and his background in the past. I've heard six or seven as a number of times that he's been looked into. Here's the response to that. That's true, but the FBI or any other law enforcement agency can only investigate or vet people to the point that they have existing facts to go on. These allegations are completely new. How can the FBI in the past have investigated an allegation that hadn't been made yet? It's a silly argument. So now that we have new information, a new investigation is absolutely warranted. I'm glad we're having one. I'm concerned that it's not going to be full enough or long enough or deep enough to get us the answers that we really need to know whether this man should be sitting on the Supreme Court. Yeah, I frankly don't know. Uh, It's very possible. And we don't know the answer to this. And we may never know that even if you had an exhaustive FBI investigation, we would ever get to the quote unquote truth in any of this. Although I think that holes would be punched in things that certain people said, whether it's Kavanaugh or Ford or, any, or, 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 or anyone else uh, making an accusation. But uh, I, I appreciate the spirited to and fro on this. has been one of our more uh, spirited to and, to and fro. Uh, Elizabeth, let's uh, talk about a couple quick indie-related things before we sign off. Okay, so one thing we want to let our listeners know is that we've been working very hard to produce uh, what we are calling ballot question explainers. We're doing this in a number of ways. One is to simply write an explainer that consists of a bunch of words that tell you what the ballot initiative does, who's behind it, what the expected effects are, what it might cost uh, the state uh, in terms of additional expenditures or revenue and that type of thing. We've also been putting together videos with the help of our podcast uh, producer who also does video work, Joey Lovato. Um, And in some cases, we've been pairing those explainer videos along with these explainers. So look for those on the Nevada Independent website just by, I think, just searching the word explainer is probably the easiest way to get the new ones to come up. And then very soon on our election page, we're going to aggregate the six explainers right there on that main page. So they'll be very easy to find, very easy to share with all your friends who may have questions about these uh, ballot initiatives before November gets here. I do want to say that I understand why people are weary by the time they not only get to the end of the election season, but the end of their ballot Uh, Elizabeth, where these ballot questions are, but uh, uh, at least one of these, question three, uh, 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 is going to have more of an effect on your life uh, uh, than anything else on the ballot with the possible exception of the governor's race. And so it, it's very important. The other ballot questions are also important and could have long-term ram- ramifications, whether you should be able to opt in or opt out of, of registering to vote at the DMV, a so-called victim's rights uh, or Marcy's Law petition, and, and, and a few others. But our reporters have worked very hard both on on, on, on writing up explanations of this with, with both sides and, and doing uh, what we really think are, 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 are very distilled but but accessible videos uh, of these. And, and speaking 
of question three. I think that's a good segue, Elizabeth, into into what else we wanted to talk about. Uh, So that is the fact that um, starting tomorrow, we will be doing our first major fundraising push for the Indy. It will be running for the entirety of the month of October. Uh, The first event on the docket is an Indy forum on question three. Uh, We will have two very knowledgeable uh, gentlemen on the stage, John Ralston uh, and Riley Snyder, who's our expert energy reporter, will be moderating uh, that conversation. We intend to fully examine the pros and cons uh, of the question inside and out. Um, We're excited about it. There actually are not very many tickets left. Uh, So if you want to attend that, now is the time to secure uh, your seat. And do you want me to finish and tell the rest of them? Please. Okay, great. So uh, that's coming up next Tuesday night at the Smith Center, Myron's Cabaret Lounge, one of our favorite uh, venues. And by the way, that'll be recorded and produced uh, by the UNLV Greenspun School of Media Studies and Journalism right here at UNLV. We're happy to be partnering with them for that event. Um, then I think is it the very next night in Reno, Wednesday the 10th uh, at Imbibe, which uh, is a craft uh, brewery. We've got some friends up there who Love John Ralston, love the indie, love the reporting we're doing, and wanted to kind of throw a quasi mixer slash fundraiser slash Q and A session at their place of business. So in Reno on Wednesday night um, at around five thirty, if you show up to that, uh, I think a portion of the proceeds go to the Nevada Independent. Uh, you'll have an opportunity to donate to us in addition to that if you so choose. Uh, and Daniel Rothberg and John Ralston will be there uh, to do a lively Q&A to talk about the issues of the day or the election or polls, whatever people have uh, questions on. Then we're really excited. Our big uh, marquee event this month, uh, and we're so gratified and grateful um, that our friend Chuck Todd, who is the NBC political director and the host of Meet the Press, will be headlining uh, our annual fundraiser. That is on Thursday, the 18th, again at the Cabaret Lounge uh, at the Smith Center. Um, We've got a number of opportunities that night to meet John and Chuck. One of them is a VIP reception, which will happen first at 530. There's also a general reception that every single person who has a ticket to will be able to attend and also kind of mix and mingle with John and Chuck, have a chance to get selfies and photos and to tweet that out and all of that. And then the big event starts at 715 uh, when you, uh, John and Chuck, will take the stage to talk about politics and media and uh, all things related in the age of Trump. You do the last one. The last one, uh, but certainly not least, is our friends at uh, Firefly uh, here in Las Vegas are, are hosting an event. Uh, and the, 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 I'll say the same thing about this that I just said about the question three form. Tickets are already running out uh, to that. So sign up. All, all You can sign up for all of this. This is a night of October 24th, uh, and you'll be able to talk to all the indie staffers and me. You can ask us any questions uh, you want out on the patio Firefly on Paradise. Uh, we're really looking forward uh, to that. To that, And I just want to say uh, that, that, that we are going to set ourselves a goal uh, for this month, and you'll know what that goal is. Uh, uh, we're going to post it on, on, on the website. Elizabeth and I still have to discuss that a little bit before, before, before we agree. <laughs> but how but, ambitious we're going to, to be on behalf right. of our team. But, but this is really important, and, and it's not just important. Obviously, it's important to us because we survive on donations. We want more uh, low-dollar donations. We want folks 
uh, who, who can afford $5 a month or $10 a month or $25 a month, in addition to our major corporate donors whom we also uh, adore. Uh, but but, but we, we, we believe in this cause. Uh, we really do. This isn't. These aren't just words uh, for, for Elizabeth or for me or for anyone on the staff. We believe in this model of nonprofit journalism. I've just returned from Austin, Texas, where I spent a, a few days at the Texas Tribune Festival. The Texas Tribune is 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 the most shining example of the success of a nonprofit model. But they're almost a decade old now, or or, or so. Uh, we are not. We have not even had our second birthday yet. We want to become sustainable in the long term. We need your help. October is the first month, as Elizabeth mentioned, that we are really saying this is our month to really uh, hit a goal. And we are talking about a goal of six figures. Uh, and 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 we really we, we need your help. So spread the word. Come to any of these events. If you can't come to any of the events, go on the website, click on that support our work button, and, and choose the level uh, that, that fits for you. Yeah, and if you want more information on the events, including uh, information pages and the actual ticketing pages, just go to the events page at the Nevada Independent.com. Every single event now is listed there with a full rundown of details and the agenda for the night, any costs that are involved, and then you can click right through and register there if you're ready. All right, Elizabeth, thanks for doing all that. Thanks for the spirited discussion. Thank you. Uh, and uh, uh, she will be back with me next week to argue again. <laughs> <clears throat> that is all the time that we have for this edition of the, of the Indie Matters uh, podcast. I want to remind everybody that this podcast will also air on the radio Sundays at 6 a.m. Yes, it's worth setting your alarm for Sunday at 6 a.m. on 91.5 FM Jazz and More. Uh, we love working with our friends here uh, at KUNV on the campus uh, of UNLV. We also want to know what you think, though. If you have ideas, criticism, or even praise, we want to improve uh, this podcast. We want more listeners. Uh, if, if you can, if you have ideas, email us at ideas at the NVND.com. And as always, I remind you, if you've forgotten the site, the Nevada Independent. Dot com. The podcast, of course, as I mentioned earlier, can be found all over the place on Google Play, Stitcher, iTunes. Go on there, subscribe, rate us, uh, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell anybody who will listen. I want to thank Keith Lynham of the Nevada Realtors for being here today. And uh, again, uh, I, I want to say what a pleasure it is to do this with the incredibly professional team here at UNLV. And they host us. And as always... Many thanks to the person Elizabeth mentioned earlier, Joey Lovato, who's our fantastic uh, guy up in Reno who produces this and makes us all sound... Podcast smooth. Oh, she is the smoothest podcaster I know, and quite the contrast to me. I'm John Ralston. Thanks for listening to Indie Matters. We'll talk to you next week. Next week.